We're looking at the book of Jeremiah. And when we heard from Jeremiah last week, we saw how proud the people of Judah were about their temple in Jerusalem. Now, these are people who are not being faithful to God at all. They've been going their own way in defiance of God. But what we saw last week was they still keep up their religious sacrifices at the temple. And they seem to believe that will keep them safe. That's their attitude. Safe from God's wrath and safe from their enemies. And they love to say, this is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. It's like a magic mantra they have. But God sent Jeremiah to stand at the gate of the temple and tell the people the truth about their situation. Jeremiah said, worship that's confined to offering a few sacrifices one day a week is not true worship. Worship that doesn't involve a commitment to walk in obedience to God all week is worthless worship. And God went on to show what worthless worship leads to in the end. It leads to death. There's nothing safe about it. That's where we ended last week. And in the rest of chapter 8, God picks up on another saying of the people. The people of Judah say, We are wise, for we have the law of the Lord. The people of Judah are saying, We have God's word. We have this book that King Josiah found in the temple. And we have scribes who've made lots of copies of the book for us. And we even know what the book says. So we are wise. God's response to that in chapter 8 is to say, what kind of wisdom is it to have my word and know what it says, but do exactly the opposite of what it says? How does that make you wise? God says that kind of wisdom leads to disaster. And so at the end of chapter 8, moving into chapter 9, we find Jeremiah again showing distress about where Judah is headed. We've seen distress from this prophet before, and in chapter 9 he says he's crushed when he thinks of the disaster that's coming. He mourns because of it. He says, horror grips me because of this judgment I have been shown. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning. God has pointed to Judah's claim to be wise, and he says, you're not wise at all. Let me teach you about worthwhile wisdom. We're going to read from chapter 9, verse 12, through to chapter 10, verse 16. And if you're looking at a church Bible, it's page 768, or in the larger print Bibles, 1189. We begin in chapter 9, verse 12, with a question from the prophet Jeremiah. Who is wise enough to understand this? Who has been instructed by the Lord and can explain it? Why has the land been ruined and laid waste like a desert that no one can cross? The Lord said, it is because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them. They have not obeyed me or followed my law. Instead, they have followed the stubbornness of their hearts. They have followed the Beals as their ancestors taught them. 
Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. See, I will make this people eat bitter food and drink poisoned water. I will scatter them among the nations that neither they nor their ancestors have known. And I will pursue them with the sword until I have made an end of them. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Consider now. Call for the wailing women to come. Send for the most skillful of them. Let them come quickly and wail over us. Till our eyes overflow with tears. And water streams from our eyelids. The sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How ruined we are. How great is our shame. We must leave our land because our houses are in ruins. Now you women hear the word of the Lord. Open your ears to the words of his mouth. Teach your daughters how to wail. Teach one another a lament. Death has climbed in through our windows and has entered our fortresses. It has removed the children from the streets and the young men from the public squares. Say, this is what the Lord declares. Dead bodies will lie like dung on the open field, like cut corn before the reaper with no one to gather them. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight declares the Lord. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised only in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and all who live in the wilderness in distant places. For all these nations are really uncircumcised. And even the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. Hear what the Lord says to you people of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the heavens, though the nations are terrified by them. For the practices of the peoples are worthless. They cut down a tree out of the forest and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. Their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. No one is like you, Lord. You are great. And your name is mighty in power. Who should not fear you, king of the nations? This is your Jew. Among all the wise leaders of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is no one like you. They are all senseless and foolish. They are taught by worthless wooden idols. Hammered silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. What the craftsman and goldsmith have made is then dressed in blue and purple, all made by skilled workers. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal King. When He is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure His wrath. Tell them this. 
these gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. But God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. When he thunders, the waters in the heavens roar. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Everyone is senseless and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idol. The images he makes are a fraud. They have no breath in them. They're worthless. The objects of mockery. When their judgment comes, they will perish. He who is the portion of Jacob is not like these. For he is the maker of all things, including Israel, the people of his inheritance. The Lord Almighty is his name. This is God's word. People of Judah think they are wise. God says they're not. And here in our passage, God teaches Judah two aspects of worthwhile wisdom. The first is in chapter 9, verses 12 to 22. Worthwhile wisdom understands the folly of forsaking God's word. A few moments ago, we heard Judah's claim that we are wise for we have the law of the Lord. Aren't we great? We have these big books under our arms, or these big scrolls. We even read them sometimes. Doesn't that make us wise? God said, no, it doesn't make you wise. You're still headed for destruction. And that is what prompts Jeremiah's question in chapter 9, verse 12. Who is wise enough to understand this? Who has been instructed by the Lord and can explain it? Why has the land been ruined and laid waste like a desert that no one can cross? Jeremiah keeps being given these terrible visions of coming judgment set before him. It hasn't come yet, but it's ready to come. And what he's saying here is, Lord, you've pointed out that the people of Judah are not wise. Their wisdom is just as worthless as their worship. So, Lord, tell us about true wisdom. What is worthwhile wisdom? See and understand that the people of Judah are not seeing or understanding. And God says, worthwhile wisdom understands the folly of forsaking God's word. It's such a simple point, but it's so crucial. True wisdom is not necessarily about knowing lots of things. True wisdom is about knowing which things are most important. And the truly wise person knows that God's word is a priceless treasure. Psalm 19 says, God's words are more precious than gold. Why? Because they tell us the truth. They tell us the truth about God and they tell us the truth about ourselves. They tell us who God is, what he loves and what he hates. They tell us what is truly good for us and bad for us. That's why Psalm 119 says to God, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light for my path. The point of a lamp is it stops us wandering off the path and into danger. The truly wise person realizes 
God knows more than me. So if he has chosen to communicate with me, if he has given me instruction, then I really need to pay attention to it. It's not safe for me to ignore it. So the truly wise person looks at these people of Judah and the truly wise person is able to say these people, their problem, the problem that's leading them to destruction is that they are forsaking God's instruction. God spells that out in verse 13. Jeremiah has asked, why is this destruction ready to come? And God says in verse 13, it is because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them. They have not obeyed me or followed my law. Instead, they have followed the stubbornness of their hearts. They have followed the Beals, as their ancestors taught them. The truly wise person can see the foolishness of Judah's behavior. And of course, you and I can see it very clearly. When we read the Old Testament for the first time, the thing that strikes us is, why are these Israelites such idiots? What's wrong with them? God shows them the way. He leads them, but they keep thinking that they know better, even though it never works out for them. Why don't they learn? We're really good at seeing it in the Israelites but we're not quite so good at seeing it in ourselves, are we? True wisdom isn't so much about mastering the contents of the Bible, although we can't really benefit from the Bible unless we know what's in it. But true wisdom is about more than just knowing the Bible. It's realizing I can trust the Bible better than I can trust myself. True wisdom understands I might not know very much, but if I follow God's word, if I listen and seek to obey, I will be able to negotiate life without shipwrecking my life. This is hard for us because the Bible regularly cuts against the grain of what you and I think is best. It regularly cuts against the grain of what we want to do. But if we are wise, we will let the Bible redirect our thinking. We'll let it change the direction of our lives. We'll let it change our priorities. If we're wise, we will decide to trust the Bible more than we trust our own wants and desires. And if we're wise, we'll take time to consider the end result of forsaking God's word. The Bible regularly shows us the results of disobedience. So we can pay attention to them and avoid the same folly. Here in our passage, God shows where Judah is going to end up if it continues to forsake God's word. Judah will become a place of wailing. Verse 17 this is what the Lord Almighty says, Consider now, call for the wailing women to come. Send for the most skillful of them. Let them come quickly and wail over us till our eyes overflow with tears and water streams from our eyelids. The sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How ruined we are. How great is our shame. We must leave our land because our houses are in ruins. 
Now, you women, hear the word of the Lord. Open your ears to the words of his mouth. Teach your daughters how to wail. Teach one another a lament. Death has come in through our windows. It has entered our fortresses. It has removed the children from the streets and the young men from the public squares. Say, this is what the Lord declares. Dead bodies will lie like dung on the open field, like cut corn behind the reaper with no one to gather them. My father-in-law says that he likes listening to wailing women. But when he says that, he's talking about country and western singers. That's a bit different from these wailing women. These are professional mourners. They would be hired for funerals and other tragic events, and they would put on a show. Messing up their hair, flailing their arms around, and letting out the most horrible shrieks and cries. And here, they're being called to wail at a funeral for a whole people, the people of Judah. The nation is pictured going into exile, and God says in verse 20, to these wailing women, you better teach your daughters how to wail. Why? Because this wailing is going to go on for a very long time. It's going to go on for generations. You'd better teach your daughters how to do it. Now, these horrible pictures of judgment are not new to us. We've seen them in previous chapters, even some of the same wording in previous chapters. Why does God show these things before they happen? He shows them so those who are wise can learn the value of obeying God's word and the folly of forsaking it. The warnings we find in Scripture are never given just to scare us. They are given for our good so we can be wise. So we can let God's Word be the lamp for our feet and the light for our path. Scripture warns us so we can avoid the heartache and the wailing that come from forsaking God's Word. That's the first aspect of worthwhile wisdom we find in this passage. The second aspect takes up the rest of the passage. Worthwhile wisdom understands the value of knowing God. We've seen how true wisdom sees the value of God's word, his instruction. This is about knowing God himself. Verse 23, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. To boast about something is to put confidence in it. Last week I heard a lady on the radio boasting about her ability to attract men. She said, they all go crazy around me. That lady was really confident in her attractiveness. She was boasting about it. And here in verse 23, God mentions 
three things people tend to put their confidence in. Their wisdom, their strength, and their riches. We see it all the time. It starts in primary school. I got a gold sticker in my homework. What did you get? Boasting in our wisdom. I bet I can run and touch that fence quicker than you can. Boasting in our strength. I've got enough money to buy 10 packets of football cards after school. Boasting in our riches. Starts early in primary school, and it just keeps on going. We might not boast about all three of those things at the same time, but we tend to believe we know how to live well. We're wise enough to get where we want to go in life, or we're confident in our health, or our financial arrangements. But maybe you're thinking, no, actually, that's not me at all. I am none of those things. Well, in that case, isn't it tempting to think, if I could just have those things, if I knew how to get what I wanted out of people, if I was healthy or if I was well off financially, then I would be set. I'd have arrived. That's why there's a whole industry selling us books or videos or seminars that will teach us how to be successful and healthy and rich. We can end up putting our confidence in those things even when we don't have them. But the Bible says the truly wise person knows that those things aren't worth our confidence. Human wisdom can only get us so far. Because human wisdom is incredibly limited. In the last century, human wisdom said that communism would create a perfect world. Just put those principles into practice and it'll fix everything. But actually, the result was millions of people being executed or starved in concentration camps and millions more living every day in fear and deprivation. That's where... That little bit of human wisdom got us. Human strength, well, it can be impressive for a while. But most of our life is a slow ebbing away of strength. That lady I heard in the radio, she was so boastful about her attractiveness. Well, if that is truly what she's putting her confidence in, the next few decades for her will be a slow slide into misery as her physical attractiveness fades. And riches, well, in theory, they make life easier if we have them. But the more we have, the more unsatisfied we tend to be. And the more family arguments we tend to have. And riches are more uncertain than we like to think. I went to school with someone who became a professional footballer. He reckons that he earned seven million pounds during his football career, and now he's bankrupt. There are plenty of people like him, not just in sport, but in business as well. How many people spend years fantasizing about the great retirement package they were going to get? only to arrive at retirement and find their pot had shrunk to very little. 
And even if we do pile up riches and hold on to them for the duration of our lives, what good are they when we're dead? Someone has said, riches may leave us while we live. We must leave them when we die. Here in Jeremiah, God says, if you're truly wise, you won't put your confidence in such uncertain things as human strength or riches. You won't put your confidence in what is currently fashionable in terms of human wisdom. The truly wise person knows there's only one worthy and unshakable place to put our confidence. That place is God himself. Knowing him on his own terms as he has revealed himself in the Bible. Knowing him as the Lord who tells us about himself in the Bible. Who shows himself through the actions recorded in the Bible. And those words and actions show us the Lord who is a God of kindness, justice, and righteousness. The word translated as kindness is hard to capture with just one English word. We might translate it loving kindness, steadfast love, unfailing love, or faithful love. But however we translate it, we're talking about the kind of love the Lord has been showing to the Israelites for generation after generation at this point. From the time he made promises to Abraham through to the deliverance of Abraham's descendants from their slavery in Egypt, the Exodus, through the journey in the wilderness under Moses, the entrance into the promised land under Joshua. And God has been showing his faithful love despite Israel's unfaithfulness, generation after generation. True wisdom realizes the amazing depths of God's love. It sees the infinite value of knowing and belonging to this God of love. And true wisdom knows God is also just. He never treats anyone unfairly. Nor does he ignore evil like it doesn't matter. God is not someone who can be bought off by the wealthy. Or scared off by the strong. Or fooled by the clever. And he's the only one who can truly untangle all the twists and turns of his people's lives. And make them work for good in the end. And he's righteous. He has integrity. He is who he claims to be. He doesn't live by one set of standards today and something different tomorrow. He deals straight. He does what he says he's going to do. He can always be trusted. He's righteous. Worthwhile wisdom understands the priceless value of knowing this God. It realizes he's the only guarantee He's the only genuine and reliable source of security and purpose and happiness. True wisdom sees this God as the only place to put our confidence. The only one to boast in. And chapter 10 verses 1 to 16 give us more reasons to trust him with our whole lives. 
The last verses of chapter 9 remind us we must give our whole lives to him. Earlier in the book, we heard God calling the people to circumcise their hearts, meaning have a fully committed heart. The Israelites were circumcised in the flesh. They had that procedure done to their bodies as a matter of course. But as God points out in verse 26, lots of other nations did that too. They used it to signify various different things. For Israel, it was an outward sign of being committed to the Lord. But it meant nothing at all if the people's hearts weren't devoted to God. And in this passage, God is saying, not just you must be devoted to me, but you are wise to be devoted to me. And in chapter 10, we get three reasons why it's wise to know and be devoted to this God. First of all, he is the only one to fear. Verses 1 to 5 are about what we should not fear. Hear what the Lord says to you, people of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the heavens, though the nations are terrified by them. For the practices of the peoples are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel they adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. The message here is, don't be afraid of what everyone else is afraid of. The nations around Israel worshipped the sun, the moon, and the stars. And they thought that what went on in the sky influenced and foretold what went on here on earth. So they tried to interpret signs in the sky like eclipses and comets and so on. And if they seemed to be bad omens, the people could be terrified. Similarly, the nations around Israel made their own idols from wood or stone. Then they decorated the idol, they carried it to their shrine, they used a hammer and nails to secure that idol to its spot so it didn't fall over. And yet the people ended up being in fear of those same idols, believing they had to appease them and cater to them. But God says to the Israelites, can't you see how silly all that is? In verse 5, it's like being frightened of a scarecrow in a cucumber field. Now, it makes sense for birds to be afraid of a scarecrow. But if the farmer who put it there goes around with his knees knocking together every time he sees it, that is ridiculous. He ought to know better. And in the same way, God says, it's ridiculous for you to fear man-made gods. And to think activity in the sky actually rules your life. Instead, God says, fear the living God who put the stars in the sky. And who doesn't need to be carried around by us or nailed to his spot so he doesn't fall over. Verse 6, no one is like you, Lord. You are great and your name is mighty in power. Who should not fear you? king of the nations. This is your Jew. Among all the wise leaders of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is no one like you. 
if we take fear here as meaning respect and honor, then the Lord is the one who truly deserves our respect and honor. Because he really does guide our lives. He really does have absolute power over our destiny. He really does have the eternal wisdom to see deeper and further than even our wisest human leaders. Someone has said, fear the Lord and you have nothing else to fear. Fear the Lord and you have nothing else to fear. He stands above all other powers in heaven and earth. If he is with us and we are with him, then we really do have nothing else to fear. Now today, we probably don't live in fear of what stars in the sky might foretell about our lives. But having said that, anyone who makes decisions based on their horoscope is doing exactly that. But even if most people won't get terrified about a comet or a constellation, even if our wisdom has caught up with the Bible on that point, we are capable today of getting terrified about climate change. Now, I'm not suggesting climate change isn't a genuine issue. I'm not suggesting we should be irresponsible with this planet God has given us. Of course, we need to be as responsible as we can be. But the question is, are we wise to live in fear about what might happen to the planet? Are we wise to let our peace of mind rest on how quickly we can reduce carbon emissions? Coming back to these verses. Today we don't live in a society where people carve wooden idols and then give them respect and honor. But... Our society does love to worship what our own hands have made. Isn't that what we're doing when we fret and panic over the safety of our possessions? We make cars, we build houses and furniture, and then we let those things that we made get a grip on us. We spend our lives worrying about them, we spend our spare time polishing them and waxing them, and we fear losing them. Now, of course, clean your house, wash your car. I intend to wash mine someday. But through Jeremiah, God says, don't give those bits of metal and plastic and brick so much respect and honor that you end up living in fear of losing them or having them damaged. And don't live in fear of people who might damage your stuff or take it away, or devalue it. They're not worth fearing. They can neither give or take away anything that is truly important. Fear the Lord. Give Him your respect and honor. Let your peace of mind rest on His character and His power, because He holds time and the universe in His hands. He holds your body and soul in his hands. Fear him, and you have nothing else to fear. Here's a second reason why it's wise to know and be devoted to the Lord. He is the uncreated creator and ruler of all. 
verse 8. They, that's the wise leaders of the nations who have been mentioned in verse 7, they are all senseless and foolish. They're taught by worthless human idols. Hammered silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. What the craftsman and goldsmith have made is then dressed in purple, in blue and purple, all made by skilled workers. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal king. When he is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. Tell them this. These gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. But God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. When he thunders, the waters and the heavens roar. He makes the clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Everything else you and I are tempted to worship had a beginning and it will have an end. Every other God is a created God, whether it's a wooden idol or some possession or a human philosophy. Eventually, it will corrode or rust or be forgotten. It will perish. But, verse 10 says, the Lord is the only true God because he's the God we did not create. He's eternal. Created temporary things cannot be worthy of our worship. And they cannot provide us with true life. They can entertain us, yes. They can distract us. They can consume vast amounts of our time and energy. But only the living God can give life to others. He's the only source of true purpose and fulfillment. Only the eternal king will reign forever. He has all the time he needs to work out his purposes and put wrongs to right. He's not limited by Brexit deadlines or any other deadlines. He has all the time in the world, literally. True wisdom realizes the Lord is the only one to fear. He is the uncreated creator and ruler of all. And he is the only true and lasting treasure. Verse 14, everyone is senseless. And without knowledge, every goldsmith is shamed by his idol. The images he makes are a fraud. They have no breath in them. They're worthless. The objects of mockery. When their judgment comes, they perish. He who is the portion of Jacob is not like these. For he is the maker of all things, including Israel, the people of his inheritance. The Lord Almighty is his name. When verse 14 says everyone is senseless and without knowledge, it's not saying they know nothing at all. It means they don't know what is truly important. Even their wise men and women don't have true wisdom. And saying that a goldsmith is shamed by his idols, that does not mean he made them badly. It's not the craftsmanship that's being criticized. The point is he will be shamed by his idols because he poured his time and effort into making them, but they can never live up to his expectations. They can't give him the return he's hoping for. 
In the end, they're worthless. Any little return they might give him can't even compensate for the time and energy he put into making them. All our idols bring this kind of disappointment. They all shame us in the end by letting us down after we've put so much into them. They all turn out to be frauds, holding out the hope they're going to deliver so much, but in the end, they all fail to deliver. I remember a song that always struck me as really sad. It was about someone trying to make it in music. The song says, Rock and roll, I gave you all the best years of my life. All those crazy, lazy young days, all those magic moonlit nights. I was so busy on the road singing love songs to you, but you were changing your direction. And you never even knew that I was always just one step behind you. Couldn't quite make it. Rock and roll, I devoted the best that I had to you. I poured out the best years of my life for you. And what did you give me back? What was the payoff? Nothing. We might say the same about whatever else we look to for ultimate fulfillment. I spoke to a Wolves fan in the week. He was not a young man. He spoke about the team and he ended the conversation by saying, well, in Nuno we trust. That's the manager. Now, I have no doubt that Nuno is a good football manager and all, but in Nuno we trust. The only thing that can come from that is disappointment. When Wolves get relegated or Nuno gets sacked. When we put our greatest hope in another person, even a genuinely nice and talented person, we will end up shamed. Because even the nicest person will prove to be a fraud if we treat them like a god. That is a weight of expectation no other human can live up to. There's only one object of worship who will never prove a fraud. Who will never cause us to be ashamed because we lived for him. Verse 16 calls him the portion of Jacob. It means the Lord. The end of the verse makes that clear. The Lord Almighty is his name. But calling him the portion of Jacob is significant. When the Israelites entered the land of Canaan, the land was divided up very precisely among them all. So each tribe was given a specific allotment of land, and within each tribe, each clan was given an allotment, and within each clan, each family had its own allotment. That land was their inheritance, their portion. It was never to be taken away from them. It was never to be bought from them permanently. It stayed in the family. It stayed in the clan. And here, Jacob is a way of referring to all the Israelites, all God's people. Their true inheritance is not a piece of land. The Lord is their inheritance. And he is their inheritance, not temporarily, but forever. And amazingly, in the second half of the verse, God flips this around. 
And he says, Israel is my inheritance. I claim them. They are what I want. There's no greater treasure than belonging to the eternal God and knowing he wants you. He didn't get stuck with you. He chose you. You are the prize he wanted. You and every other member of his people. The people of his inheritance. So give God his true place as king of the universe. Give him his true place as Lord of your life. Respect him, honor him as the eternal king. And you will find he's worthy of your trust. He's not a fraud. And he wants to give you himself. He's the only true and lasting treasure. And the only wisdom that's worth anything is wisdom that understands the priceless value of knowing this God. When we get to the New Testament, we're given one final piece of this picture we've been looking at. The Apostle Paul points to Jesus Christ as the way to know God. We read earlier in 1 Corinthians. Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written back in Jeremiah chapter 9, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God says, if you want to know me in my perfect kindness, justice, and righteousness, then get to know my son Jesus. If you want to enjoy all the good things I have for you, righteousness, holiness, and redemption, then put your trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross. Before we gather around this table to focus on the cross, we're going to respond by bringing our adoration to this God we've been reading about. He is worthy of our worship, and we're going to worship him together as we sing, Behold Our God.